1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. Hear the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For... I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. After many years in our church in Mexico of enjoying having the Lord's Supper, not just every Sunday, but in my case, three or four times every Sunday, because we had three or four services, I got to take the Lord's Supper repeatedly every Lord's Day. And so... Coming here and forming this new church, and now we're into three years, not having had the Lord's Supper together, it seems like I've I've been on like a starvation diet. And it's been very difficult for me, and I know for a number of others. And, And so people have asked, do you not think the Lord's Supper is important? Is that why you don't do it? And the question is actually, or the answer is actually the opposite. No, we think it is so important, but we've had some obstacles in the way. And we haven't been able to do it together. The simple answer for why we haven't done it is because we haven't had any church members. And the Lord's Supper is not an individual Christian thing. It is a a sacrament or an ordinance of the church. And we haven't had any church members to do it together. Now, we, we could have done it with those who at the beginning were church members, but there were hardly any of those in the original group that was here. And a, another thing that I, I, 
also happened is as I began to, to understand more and more, get back into the North American evangelical church situation, I realized that not among all, of course, but among many professing Christians, there is a very low view of the church. And as I began to understand that and understand how to address that, I realized that until we understand the church, we're not going to understand the ordinances or the sacraments of the church. So I've taken a few steps back and tried to prepare the way for it. Now, finally, we have a group of enthusiastic people ready to be members and some others that are in the process. And so we're looking forward to taking the Lord's Supper together next week. But as I think about that idea of a low view of the church, that's exactly the situation that they had in Corinth. That was the problem. They were thinking wrongly about the church, and therefore they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And so Paul had to step in, and he had to correct their abuse of the Lord's Supper by teaching them about the church, and uh, by by, uh, also giving us positive instruction about what the Lord's Supper is. So, it starts out with this this question of despising the church in verses 17 to 22. And Paul says, you're meeting together, and that's good, you're meeting together, that's what churches do. You're meeting together, but your meeting together is causing more harm than good. And that's a very strong statement. Verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And why was that? Well, there were divisions in the church. Now, this is nothing new in Corinth. We already know from chapter 1 that there were, were divisions or factions in the church around favorite preachers. And some would say, no, I think Peter's the better preacher. No, I'm with Paul. No, have you heard Apollos preach? And they were gathering around their, fam- their favorite preachers. But this is another type of division we find here. So in addition to their dividing around their favorite preachers, there were social divisions in the church between those who had more and those who had less. And what they were doing is they were importing their social divisions into the church and therefore into the Lord's Supper. And that was the the basic problem here. Now... um, That's what he says in in verse uh, 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. He's giving them some credit here. He says, I believe it in part. And then he says in verse 19, uh, a verse that's a little bit difficult to know how to take. He says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, this could be either sarcastic, and Paul is capable of sarcasm. He uses it in other places in his letters. He could be saying, for there must be divisions among you folks, so that the ones who are the real deal can be recognized. So it could be with that sort of tone of sarcasm, or it could be simply realism, saying, well, divisions are going to happen, and one of the good purposes of the divisions is it shows who are really Christians after all. So I tend to think that it's sarcastic, but it may be simply a realistic observation. And then he says, it's so bad. 
It's so bad, your situation, that when you come together in verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Your, your profaning of the Lord's Supper is so bad that it is no longer able to be considered the Lord's Supper. And that's what he says. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Now, one of two possibilities here, either they're referring to a communal meal that they would have before the Lord's Supper that was something like a church potluck supper. And so people would, would bring their, their food and they would share it. Now, the churches didn't have their own buildings uh, this early on, and so they would meet in homes. But in whose homes would they meet? Well, they would meet in the homes of the wealthiest people because they had the biggest homes. And so it could be that what was happening is they would have this this potluck supper, but the wealthy people already had their spread out. And they just would go ahead and start eating, and the poor people would come along later with not much to offer or maybe nothing at all to offer to find that the the wealthy people had already uh, indulged in lots of food, and too much drink to the point of getting drunk. Or it could be that they were actually doing this in the Lord's Supper, that they weren't waiting for each other, that the wealthy people were elbowing their way to the front, or whatever it might have been, and they were, they were taking the Lord's Supper as if it were a meal to satisfy their physical hunger and physical thirst, and not leaving any for those who were poorer and waiting back. But however that is, if it was the common meal before the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Supper itself, he was saying, the profanation is so great, the abuse is so great, that this isn't the Lord's Supper anymore. And what he says is that you have houses. If you want really to satisfy your hunger, you have houses to do that. Verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And then he asks the question, Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So he says, you're humiliating the poor and you are despising the church. It looks like they're despising the church by humiliating the poor. By importing their social divisions, their stratification into the church, they were despising the poor and the church because they were not recognizing what the church is. They were not recognizing, as Paul says in Galatians, that that in Christ there is neither Greek, nor nor Jew, nor male, nor female, nor slave, nor free. That that these social divisions are, are taken away in the church, that we are all one in Jesus Christ. And so if we despise, humiliate one section of the church, we are despising the church. And so they were doing that, and they were also practicing immorality. Those are the two big issues in in. 1 Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, practicing immorality, sex outside of biblical marriage, and they were despising each other with these various factions. So, uh, what, what Paul said to do was something very practical. If you go to the end of this section, in verse 33, he says, when you come together, wait for each other. That's the practical solution to some getting gorged and drunk and others not getting anything. He says, Wait for each other. So a very practical solution. And he says, if you're hungry, then eat at home. 
satisfy your hunger and your thirst at home, and then you can come together and really have the Lord's Supper uh, as it is meant to be. Now, that was the problem. And we have this, this wonderful summary statement or summary passage that teaches about the Lord's Supper to try to rectify this problem. And, and you're probably familiar with verses 23 to, to 26 where he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Here he begins to instruct positively about the Lord's Supper, what it is. He says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. And then he says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, for you. And this preposition, for you, is a, it can be translated various ways, but it, it is a, is a strong preposition that often means on behalf of you, in your stead, uh, in your favor. And so here it's pointing, when it, when it has to do with the death of Christ, it's pointing to the nature of His death, that His death was for us, that is to say, in our place taking our sin, as we read earlier, so that we might have His righteousness. So, He took the bread, He gave thanks, He broke it, He said, This is My body which is for you, on your behalf. Do this in remembrance of Me. Then, same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Now, the new covenant... The New Covenant doesn't show up very much in the New Testament, which is kind of surprising because we call the New Testament the New Testament, the New Covenant. But it's, it's, it's explained in Hebrews and it's, it's mentioned here. But it's a very important concept that comes from Jeremiah 31 that we read earlier in the service. That in the last days, God would make a new covenant with the people. And in that new covenant, they wouldn't be able to break it. He would keep it for them, and their iniquity would be forgiven. Their sins would be covered. And so Jesus is saying, this is the fulfillment. And how does this new covenant come about? How is it inaugurated? How is it ratified? How is it sealed? How is it effected? It is effected by His blood. So His body is for us, His blood is that which affects the new covenant and the terms thereof. And then Paul gives a summary statement, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So if somebody asks you, what's the purpose of of the Lord's Supper? Well, one of the purposes is a proclamation of the Gospel. It's a proclamation of the fact that Jesus died for sinners, that He shed His blood to bring about the terms of the new covenant in His death. It's a proclamation and it's also an anticipation until He comes. So we're looking back to what He did in His death. We're looking forward to His coming again. And then He says twice, do this in remembrance of Me. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are records of the institution of the Lord's Supper, and they're a little bit different in each one, and this is a little bit different than each of those as well. Uh, In John, interestingly, it's not even mentioned, but there's a lot of language that points toward it. And all Christians, all Christians, just like when I spoke about baptism, I had to mention divisions in what we think about baptism. Well, there's some divisions in what we think about the Lord's Supper as well. But all Christians recognize one thing, and that is that this is a remembrance meal. Do this in remembrance of me. All of us recognize that. However, the debate is joined when it has to do with what is the the relationship between 
the bread and the wine and the body and blood of Jesus. What, what is that relationship exactly? And if you read the literature, and especially if you read kind of church statements about what they believe, there are many who act like they're the only ones who take this seriously. And only once you take the language seriously and at face value, and the rest of us are playing fast and loose with the uh, what Jesus said. But I insist that everyone, everyone has to take this at some level, at some level, to some degree, figuratively. Now... Um, when Roman Catholics say uh, this is, what they mean is, what they interpret that is, as this becomes. So uh, they're saying we're taking it seriously, this is, but what they're really saying by that is this bread becomes. When the priest says the words of the institution, the bread and the wine become the physical body and physical blood of Jesus. That is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. So for them, this is means this becomes. And by the way, remains. Remains. And that's why they, they treat it in a certain way. They'll bow down to it and, and so on. Um, this is the physical, in their mind, the physical body and blood of Jesus from the time of the institution of the priest. Lutherans, they take this is to mean this accompanies. This accompanies, and they use the expression that the physical body of Jesus is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. So the bread and the wine don't change into something that they're other than bread and wine, but the physical body of Jesus is in, with, and under the elements, but only during the supper and then afterwards no longer. Most evangelicals take this is to mean this represents. If you read the parable of the soils, Jesus uses this kind of language there, representative language, this is, this represents. Now, um, as I said, everybody is interpreting this. Uh, People sometimes say, we're the only ones that take this is seriously. But this is, and this becomes, this is, and this accompanies, and this is, and this represents, all of those are interpretations of this. And there are grammatical, historical, and theological reasons not to think that the physical body of Jesus is there present in the elements. And let me just give you give you some of those briefly here. And that is to say, this is arguing in favor of this is, meaning this represents or this stands for. First of all, the word this is neuter. Uh, in, in Greek, uh, there are different genders. We don't have that so much in English, but there is masculine, feminine, and neuter. The word bread is masculine. The word this is neuter. And if it were to be a very tight connection between this and bread, it would match in gender. Now, that's unusual for us in English. We don't think like that. But if, if you work with other Romance languages, it would have to match. And that's how it was in Greek. So it doesn't look like the, the, the connection is that tight. In addition, when Jesus gets to the cup, he never says, the wine is my blood. He says, this cup is the new covenant... Or, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. And so, 
he's using, if he says the, the, the cup is the new covenant, obviously the cup does not transform itself into the concept of the new covenant. He's obviously using some sort of representative language there. Uh, in addition, he said that the, the focus of the eating and the drinking is his death. What does this proclaim? It proclaims his death. That's the takeaway. That's the focus that we're supposed to have. And then, uh, historical and theological reasons. Historical, and it's this. Where was Jesus' physical body when he said, this is my body? Well, right there. And nobody would have confused the, the bread with his physical body. It was very clear that his physical body was right there. If I were to say, uh, to say, well, well, this, this pen is my finger, and, 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 and this, uh, this uh, stand is the hammer, and I want to explain to you what happened in my accident. Okay, none of you are going to mistake or think that this pen became my finger, or that my finger somehow was in, around, and under this pen, except for the fact that I'm holding it, but I mean, but this pen is, is representative. And so, uh, he says here, uh, this is my body, but his body was right there. So there was no, no confusing about where his body was. It was right there. And then, when we read Scripture, after the resurrection and the ascension, the, the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus' physical body, Jesus' physical body is at the right hand of God. And here's the theological important uh, argument. Real human bodies, real human bodies, in how many places are they at once? And the answer is one. Human bodies are in one place at one time, if they're real human bodies. Now, did Jesus take on a real human body just like ours? Well, the answer is yes, and if the answer is no, then we are in big trouble. Because Jesus redeems that which He takes on. And if He did not take on a real human body, guess what, folks? No resurrection of the dead, no redemption for our real human bodies. And so, the, a real human body is at one place at one time. It was there at the supper, and now is at the right hand of God. Now, this is all argumentation in favor of taking these these words to be representative. Uh, this bread represents my body. This cup represents the new covenant in my blood. But I, I, we shouldn't stop there. We shouldn't stop there. Because if we say only that this is representative, then we don't take into account all of the biblical information. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, one cha- chapter back, Paul describes the Lord's Supper using a word that we sometimes use to describe it. And he says, chapter 10, verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And this word is koinonia, sharing with, communion, which is why we also call the Lord's Supper Communion. And so, we are, in the Lord's Supper, communing with Christ. And if you ask the question, is He really present in the Lord's Supper? The answer is yes. And how do we know that? Because we're having communion with Him. And that's the difference. Is He really present? Yes. Is He physically present? No. 
Why? Because he is physically present at the right hand of the Father. Then how is he present? Just how he said he would be present. Do you remember back in John when we were hearing his teaching about the Holy Spirit? He was saying, I'm leaving, John chapter 16, I'm going away, and it's good for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, would not come. But how is Jesus with us now? By the Holy Spirit. Now, now this is where some people criticize this position and say, oh, you're spiritualizing the text. You're not taking it seriously. And I would respond in saying, no, you're not taking seriously my capital S. When I say that, that Jesus is present spiritually, I mean He is present by His Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is with us when we are taking the Lord's Supper together. And so, uh, that, is not, that is not despising the Lord's Supper, lowering the Lord's Supper. That is saying that Jesus is really present. And how is He present? He's present in the way He said He would be present in the world after Pentecost. He's present by His Holy Spirit. Spiritually present. Now, that's important to note because you do hear some people say, Oh, the Lord's Supper, it's just a memorial. Just a memorial. As if a memorial were a small thing. But just a memorial. No, it's not just a memorial. It is a memorial. It is a remembrance meal. But it is also communion. Communion. Fellowship with Jesus. My daughter, some 20 years ago or so, she saw that when we were in worship, after the sermon, we'd take the Lord's Supper. And she grew up with this experience, seeing the Lord's Supper every Sunday, several times a Sunday, and she really wanted to make her profession of faith, and she wanted to to participate in the Lord's Supper, and I was out walking the dog with her once, and I was kind of interviewing her. I really wanted to get her sense of what she understood about this and why she wanted to do it. And I said, well, well sweetheart, why, why do you want to... why do you want to take the Lord's Supper? And she stopped and she said... Dad, it's the climax of the service. It's when we have fellowship with Jesus and with each other. I thought, that's the best explanation of the Lord's Supper I've ever heard in my entire life. And so whenever I explain the Lord's Supper, I quote my theologian daughter, because that is a good summary. Is Jesus there? Yes, we're having fellowship with Him and we're having fellowship with one another. Look what, look what Paul says in what I just read here. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What's that? That is participation with Jesus and participation with one another. Now, um, Paul goes on here and says, because this is so important and so special, uh, we ought not to abuse it. And there are ways to abuse it, and that's what they were doing. And so he says, we need to be careful not to partake in an unworthy way. And then he goes on to explain what that unworthy way. He says, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That is to say, probably means guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Do you see how this works? By receiving it worthily, we get 
the, the benefits of, of His body and His blood. By despising it and receiving it unworthily, we are sinning against the realities that are signified here. Now, what do we need to participate worthily in the Lord's Supper? There are some objective requirements that are presupposed in this context and are often ignored uh, in the modern church. Uh, And those are baptism, chapter 1, all of the people to whom he was writing here were baptized, and 2, what we call church membership. And how do we know that? Because if you look at chapter 5, they were practicing church discipline. And you can't practice church discipline unless you have recognized church members. And so, uh, these were baptized, what we would call, and not just we, Paul calls them members as well, baptized church members. Those were objective requirements to participate in the Lord's Supper. And our denomination upholds this standard by, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we invite those baptized believers who are communicants in good standing in this or some other evangelical gospel preaching Bible-based church. So we recognize other churches as well and their communions and their, their membership. So those are the objective standards. But then there's some subjective standards. And by ignoring objective standards, by the way, we also distort the, the subjective standards. Well, the subjective standard is that we need to discern the body of the Lord. Verse 28, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, baptized communicants of of churches, how should we come? We should come judging ourselves. That's what he calls it in verse uh, 31. uh, First of all, he says, uh, examining ourselves in verse 28, and then judging ourselves in verse 31. Now, because we have ignored the objective standards, we sometimes misunderstand this, this subjective experience of what this means to examine ourselves. And what people often do is they say, well, I'm going to examine myself to determine whether I'm worthy to come to the Lord's Supper or not. That's not the idea here. Paul never says, excommunicate yourself. He says, examine yourself and come. Examine yourself and eat. Examine yourself and drink. If you need to be excommunicated, the church will do that for you. That's not your decision. If the church sees that you're walking in a manner unworthy of the gospel, the church will excommunicate you. But if you are a baptized communicant in a church, you should come. But how should you come? You should come in repentance and renewed faith. You should come by examining your life, turning from sin, turning back to Christ. And the the Lord's Supper calls us to do that. Of course, the whole Christian life is a turning from sin to Christ, but the Lord's Supper especially calls us to, to examine ourselves. And particularly, particularly we need to discern the body to discern the body. Now, in some communions, that's, that's really discerning that, that this bread is physically the body, of Christ, uh, the body of Jesus. But in this context, it looks like discerning the body means discerning the body of Christ, which is the, the illustration that Paul uses in, in 1 Corinthians, that the church is the body of Christ. And what was their sin? They were despising the, the body, the church. And so we need to discern, we need to understand and judge correctly what is the church of Jesus Christ. 
and not commit sins against each other by immorality, not commit sins against each other by divisions, as they were doing. Now, um, unworthy participation was having some grave consequences there, wasn't it? There were many who were sick, and some had even died, Paul says. And the reason was, is because they were coming in an unworthy manner to take of the Lord's Supper. So he said, this is serious. This is not to keep you from coming. It is to encourage you to come, but to abandon your sin on the way, to turn from sin and to Jesus. Now, um, sometimes people will say, well, pastor, you know, church members have come to me and said, pastor, I, I just don't think I should take because I'm just feeling like a sinner. And I said, well, this meal is for sinners. And I said, don't abandon the Lord's Supper. That's not optional. Abandon your sin and come to the Lord's Supper. Turn from your sin and to Christ. That's how we should come in a worthy way. Our sin is the optional part. The Lord's Supper is not the optional part. So we are to come and to eat. Self-examination, self-judgment. And if we judge ourselves, Paul says, we will not be judged by the Lord. Verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now look how this goes. He says, you don't want to be judged by the Lord, and so you come in repentance and renewed faith to the table. But even if you come unworthily, you will be judged, and that too is a good thing, because it will be disciplined for you. So this is a win-win situation. If you are a believer and you come in a worthy manner, it will be blessing to you. If you come in an unworthy manner, it will be discipline for you. And although discipline is difficult, that is so that you will not be condemned with the world. That's what he says here. We, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, it's a win-win. We come worthily, we enter into the blessings thereof, we come unworthily, we're disciplined by the Lord, and He helps us to repent of our sins. Now, um, as I mentioned, we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday, uh, several times in our church in, in Mexico. We'll see the customs that we, we develop here. But that was not common among evangelicals. And so often I would get questioned about that. And people would say, why do you have the Lord's Supper every week? And this is my answer. Because we haven't figured out a way yet to have it every day. If, if the Lord's Supper represents and communicates to us the, the benefits of the body and blood of Christ for us, if the Lord's Supper is communion with Christ, as my little theologian said, communion with Christ and communion with each other, then the more often we have it, the better. And so, what's the takeaway, my friends? Believe in Jesus for salvation, the one who died and rose again for sinners. Be baptized. Join the church. And then eat and drink. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You gave us sensible signs. You gave us water that washes. You gave us bread to eat, wine to drink. And all of this reminds us and communicates to us the grace of Jesus 
who gave Himself for us to wash us from our sins and so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we thank You that we have the opportunity next week to participate in the Lord's Supper. And I pray for those who are communicants as we come next week that we would be able to come worthily so that we might enter for good and enter for blessing and eat and drink together and not bring judgment on ourselves, but remember that Jesus took our judgment for us. And we pray that our coming together would always be for blessing and that it would never be for ill. We pray, O God, that that as we take the Lord's Supper, that Jesus would be proclaimed until He comes again. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.